Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Today we're talking about chemical safety. But first, we have a short and important public service announcement brought to you by our correspondent, Diana Vasquez. Thanks, Colleen. The day this podcast drops, Tuesday, September 24th, 2019, we're celebrating National Voter Registration Day. Yes, that's a real thing. Every election, far too many of us in the U.S. who are eligible to vote don't do it. Folks miss registration deadlines or don't know how to register, or maybe they don't know where they're supposed to go when it's time to vote. So this day is intended to be a day of action before state-by-state deadlines for voter registration start taking effect in October. Thousands of organizations and people are donating their time today to make sure their friends, family members, and community members are registered to vote. And the Union of Concerned Scientists is doing our part with this public service announcement. First of all, let's do some interactive podcasting. If you're an undergrad majoring in any discipline within STEM right now, that's science, technology, engineering, and math, I want you to raise your hand. Hand up? Good. Now I want you to take that hand and smack yourself in the face because I just learned that STEM majors vote less frequently than any other major. If you care about having people in office who understand the value of what you do, then you have got to vote. All right, hands down. Next question. If you live in the United States, are eligible to vote, and are listening to the sound of my voice, are you registered to vote? Is your best friend registered? Your aunt, your neighbor, your colleagues, your classmates, Time to start asking. Go to sciencerising.org, sciencerising, all one word, to find the tools you need to register or confirm your registration and learn about voting in your state. If you discover that you're all set to vote, but you're feeling eager to help other people, you can even organize your own voter registration events in your community. And if you're not eligible to vote in the US, you can still be involved. You can help out with voter registration drives, You can remind your friends to register or drive your friends and neighbors to polling stations. Let's work together to boost the science vote in 2020. I'm Diana Vasquez, and this has been your 2019 National Voter Registration Day PSA. Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Do you ever think about what's in and on the surface of many of the items you have around the house? Not too long ago, I went shopping for a new sofa. I was looking for a neutral color that would complement my plants and fit in with the rest of my place. And it had to be comfortable, you know, not too firm, but not so soft that you sink in and can't get up. It also couldn't be more expensive than my actual house. Furniture shopping is hard. What I didn't worry about was whether the sofa cushions might be treated with toxic chemicals that could be released into my lungs every time I sit down and eventually make me sick. As a consumer in the United States, I assume that products in a store are only sold after someone, or multiple someones, tested them for safety. But after speaking with today's guest, I've learned a lot more about how we regulate chemical safety which means I've also learned how much room there is for improvement. Dr. Arlene Bloom is a biophysical chemist with an adventurous background. We talked about the research she did in the 70s on cancer-causing chemicals that showed up in a worrying product, 
kids' pajamas. Back then, practically every child in America wore these carcinogenic pajamas, and parents were buying them because they trusted chemical safety regulators to do their job. Arlene did some heroic research and proved these PJs were too dangerous for kids to wear. Her work was instrumental in regulating these harmful chemicals, and you may be surprised at how they did their research, but rest assured, scientists don't run experiments like that anymore. This research set her up for an important battle that she's fighting to this day. Today, she's the executive director of the Green Policy Institute, a nonprofit that brings scientific research into policy discussions to keep us safe from toxic chemicals. Arlene and I talked about what's wrong with the way we currently regulate or don't regulate chemicals, how safety research can improve our chemical safety policies, and how her fascinating mountaineering experiences inspired her toxic chemicals research. Arlene, thank you so much for joining me on the Got Science podcast. Delighted to be here. It's really an honor to meet you. I have to say, hands down, you've had the most unusual background of the scientists I've interviewed thus far. You led the first all-women ascent of Annapurna, which was the first successful American ascent. You and your research were instrumental in the regulation of cancer-causing chemicals used as flame retardants in kids' jammies in the 70s, and you co-founded the Green Science Policy Institute to bring scientific research into policy decisions to keep us safe from toxic chemicals. I imagine you're busier than ever with the current administration. And while I really, really want to start and talk about mountain climbing, I'm going to start with science. Um, So tell me, how pervasive are toxic chemicals in the life of an average American today? Way too pervasive. And unfortunately, uh, responsible for a big chunk of our health problems, of the cancer and infertility and neurological problems in our population. But the good news is we can indeed reduce the harmful chemicals in our everyday products and all be healthier. So I am an optimist, and I think this provides a huge opportunity for scientists. I think scientists are so good at sharing their science and changing policy, and so I see a lot of hope for reducing the problem. Give me an example of some of our everyday products that we encounter that have toxic chemicals in them. Well, we think about chemicals in classes, and my favorite class, because it's the worst, (laughs) I think, are the highly fluorinated chemicals, or sometimes called PFAS, per and polyfluoroalkyl substances, which is a big mouthful, PFAS is the abbreviation, and they're stain and water repellents. And for example, you'll find them in carpets. That's the largest exposure for children. Um, You'll find them, they're used to make Teflon and and Gore-Tex. They can be coatings on furniture um, to and other products to keep them waterproof. So that's that's one example. And in many cases, you actually don't need these chemicals, and we can reduce their use. As long as we don't mind a few stains on our carpet and sofa. Yeah, you can do other things to avoid stains right. without these chemicals. So you did groundbreaking research in the 70s on TRIS, which is the flame retardant that used to be in children's sleepwear. Um, Tell me about the research and how you came to focus on this chemical. Well, it's interesting because it ties into my mountain climbing. I was doing an expedition in India with America's leading young rock climber, Bruce Carson, who was a strong environmentalist, and he fell to his death. And I wanted to do something 
in his memory for the environment. And I was at that point a postdoc at Stanford studying how proteins fold, and I thought that was not important. It turns out it's quite important. But at the time, I went to see Bruce Ames, who had a test for rapid screening of chemicals. And I said, is there something I can do to make the environment healthier in honor of my friend who died climbing? And he said, well, I'm worried about kids' pajamas. 10% of the weight of almost all kids' pajamas in America is this flame retardant called brominated tris. And I think it's a mutagen, it changes DNA, I think it's cancer-causing, and I think it gets into the kids. So we found a little girl whose mom had bought her pajamas in the UK, had never worn Tris pajamas, and we put her in the Tris pajamas, we collected her urine. The first morning, there were toxic Tris breakdown products in the little girl's urine, and every day she wore the pajamas, the level went up, she stopped wearing the pajamas, the level went down. And this was shocking. So in America, chemicals that we put in our mouths, foods, drugs, pesticides, are regulated. You could argue how well, but they are regulated. And all the rest of the chemicals are only regulated by something called the Toxic Substances Control Act, which when it passed in the 70s, grandfathered about 60,000 chemicals, like Tris, saying every chemical we're using now is fine. And those cannot be touched for regulation. But anyway, back to the little girl. So her pajamas, clearly this potentially toxic chemical was going from the pajamas into the child. And so we ran uh, an Ames test looking at whether it changed DNA, and it was one of the strongest mutagens we'd ever seen. So a mutagen is something that changes DNA, and what does that It can lead to cancer. So Bruce's Ames theory was if something was a mutagen, it was likely to be a carcinogen, and that is often proven true, not always. But in this case, it was a mutagen and a carcinogen. And we wrote a big lead article in Science Magazine, and in those days we shared it with all three of the TV networks, and immediately everyone in America knew and was outraged. And it's hard to believe, but three months later, Tris was banned from kids' pajamas. That next day, it was banned, three months, from when we wrote our paper to when we had impact. And that is really our model at our institute, is to write scientific papers that will have impact. I, l- I actually like the, the title of your paper because it's something that I've, well, well the directness of it, I've never seen. The title was unequivocal and stated flame retardant additives as possible cancer hazards. The main flame retardant in children's pajamas is a mutagen and should not be used. And that's that's a strong title. Exactly. And that is really the basis of our institute right now at the Green Science Policy Institute. We and the scientists we work with try to make strong statements. You know, most scientific research ends with the same statement. More research. Exactly. More <laughs> research is needed. It's a very safe statement. And we really want to move scientists from more research is needed to saying this chemical is harmful and should not be used. And we found that when scientists do this, it is so powerful because today it takes longer than three months. The chemical industry is a lot more um, feisty about defending their market and their territory. But nonetheless, we have actually quite remarkably to us, almost always been successful in taking our scientific research to decision makers and affecting change. And and that is what we do, and that's a really great example. So the flame retardant pajamas were available for about a year. Do you know if there were any children who wore them for a year that ended up 
with um, any significant illness? Well, you know, it's you can't really ask that question because uh, people, humans move around a lot. We're exposed to many toxic Too many substances. So I'm sure many children who are the cancer-causing pajamas got cancer, but was it the pajamas or the person smoking next to them you know, or the meat they ate with preservatives. So it's very hard to answer that question. When the whole population is exposed for a really long time, like cigarette smoke, asbestos, chemicals, substances like that, you can draw that equation. But but fortunately, children were not exposed for that long to brominated tris. So once they couldn't use tris, they developed chlorinated tris, which is another form and you did more research on that, and that too was banned. Yeah, exactly. So a big problem around trying to reduce harm from chemicals is if there's a chemical that's really commonly used in an industrial process, and after what's usually years and years of scientific research and advocacy and regulation, it's finally banned or phased out, it's quite difficult and expensive to change industrial processes. And so the chemical industry will usually come up with a chemical that's almost identical in structure, function, and unfortunately harm. And that's called a regrettable substitute. And so when brominated tris was banned, the substitute was chlorinated tris, which similarly changed DNA and similarly was found to be cancer-causing and indeed was phased out of use in pajamas um, back in, I think, 1977. But, of course, the really interesting thing about chlorinated tris, which contributed to what I think is kind of a remarkable story of mine, is they continued to use it in furniture. And I didn't know that. I thought, oh, brominated tris is gone, chlorinated tris is gone. I'm going to go back to mountain climbing. It's all fine. And then about 25 years later... I said, well, my daughter's going to college. I finished my memoir. Maybe I can go back to science. But I haven't done science for 25 years, and I'm sure I'm out of date. And I learned that the same chlorinated tris that we had gotten out of kids' pajamas was back in just about everybody's furniture. So if you bought a couch between about 2005 and about 2012, the foam in your couch cushion is about 5% by weight the same chlorinated tris. So if you had 40 pounds of foam in your couch, you would have two pounds of chlorinated tris in your house. And it's known now to be cancer-causing. Wow. And um, so it was kind of amazing because I decided to go back to science after that long break, thinking maybe I'd be lucky if I could get a job washing test tubes in somebody's lab because after so many years, I, I didn't know anything. Yeah, it was actually 26 years, 1980 to 2006. And I learned that Tris was back, and I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times, and it just started an incredible torrent of events. So how is it that it got to make a comeback? It was used the whole time. All it was phased out was in pajamas, but it wasn't phased out of all the other uses. And it's still used today in transportation foam. It has been phased out from all um, products, chlorinated tris, but probably the foam in your car and your airplane and your boat, it may well still have chlorinated There's tris. There's no getting away from it, it sounds like. Well, there is. It's out of products, which is really good. Mm. Basically, 
at that point when I went back to to science, I all the furniture in America, pretty much the foam was five percent by weight, a toxic flame retardant that actually did not help prevent fires, which is really crazy. And also all these children's products, high chairs, strollers, nursing pillows, you know, nursing pillow covered in organic cotton would have inside it a cancer-causing chemical that came out. Mm. And that was all the baby products and furniture in 2006. But something you just said now is striking me. You said it's not even really flame retardant? It doesn't provide a fire safety benefit. So we know that, but it's still It's not there anymore. It's been solved. It's been solved. So if you go buy a couch today, there'll be a label on it that will check whether or not it has flame retardants, and it will say that it doesn't, almost for sure. And it's not in children's products anymore. Okay. That's good news. And that's all based on science. really good news based on science. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. The Got Science podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, PRX, SoundCloud, and all the usual podcast outlets. For a transcript or links to additional resources from this episode and a full bio of our guest, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. And if you have a sec, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's one of the best ways to help Got Science get noticed. It's quick and super easy. When you open Got Science in your podcast app, just scroll down to the bottom to ratings and reviews and leave a comment. And finally, if you're on Twitter, come talk to us at Got Science UCS. Now let's get back to our interview. Where was the chemical industry in all of this? Well, as the story goes, when I learned Tris was back, I thought, oh, I'm going to have a meeting with the chemical industry and everybody and explain how bad Tris is and I'll stop using it. Um, but that didn't happen. <laughs> they didn't even want to come to my meeting. For flame retardants, it's all about your flammability standard. And the only state in the country that can make flammability standards is California, because back when we had our big fire um, in uh, 1908, I believe, we got a flammability bureau, and we're the only state that can do that. And so we make standards, and they're followed across all of the U.S. and Canada, because manufacturers want to make the same product. So there's a California standard, and I will say this, it's a little complicated, but it said that the foam inside a couch or a children's product has to resist a very small flame for 12 seconds. And to do that, you have to make the foam 5 to 10% by weight a toxic flame retardant. But if you do a thought experiment and you wrap a candle on your couch, what burns first? The fabric? The fabric. And do you have a small flame or a large flame? I would imagine it would be a fairly large flame right. with the entire surface of the, right. the fabric. So then the flame retardant only delays the burning maybe two seconds. And when you have flame retardants, the fire gives out way more soot, smoke, and toxic gases. And you know what kills people in fires? What they're breathing? The toxic gases yeah. and the soot and smoke keeps them from escaping. So for making your cushion, having pounds of toxic flame retardants in your couch, in your house, 
if there were a fire, you'd get a couple seconds delay in a much smokier, more toxic fire, and that's what kills people. Mm-hmm. So many studies showing no fire safety benefit, and we discovered that, and we came up with a new strategy where you could stop the fire in the fabric without flame retardants, and we had legislation in California, and the chemical industry spent a documented $23 million over four years preventing all this legislation from passing. So the story of what happened is um, we got a new governor, and his senior advisor lived not far from me and had a dog and liked to go hiking. And so in those days, my friends would say, well, we'll go hiking with you, but you have to promise not to talk about flame retardants the whole time. Because I was a little obsessed, like, you know. So I started hiking with the governor's senior advisor, and so he got educated. He educated the governor. The governor said maybe he could do something about it, but um, he really couldn't because the chemical industry would have spent a fortune, you know, advertising right. that he was burning down the state. You know, it wasn't very pretty the way they spent their $23 million. Right. And then the Chicago Tribune, I kept inviting the press to these crazy hearings um, where the chemicals, she would just lie, and then people would vote, you know, they would win, we'd get defeated. So anyway, I invited them to a particular uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning reporters from the Chicago Tribune to a very crazy hearing, and they ended up researching and writing a series of front-page exposés. And I think the subtitle of one... Um, Oh, I can't do it by heart. But it basically said that these flame retardants had been put in all our furniture and they didn't work as promised. And um, that changed everything. And then the governor, like two weeks after that came out, he uh, issued a great press release saying we didn't need toxic flame retardants in our furniture. And so now everybody can buy couches and children's products without these toxic chemicals. We'll all be healthier. So it's a very positive story. And again, it was based on scientific research. So I want to go back to the U.S. Toxic Substances Control Act, also known as TOSCA. Um, And I, I think so many people assume that if a product is on the market, that our government has determined that it's that it's safe and that we can use it and not become ill or get cancer or die. How how is chemical safety determined? Why were all those chemicals before 1976 were they tested? They weren't deemed safe. They were all safe? grandfathered. They were just grandfathered, and they never had extensive testing on and them to begin with. they can't regulate them. Asbestos is one of the grandfathered chemicals. The EPA spent several years and could not regulate asbestos. Now you're going to say, wait, wait, you can't use asbestos. It's against the law. There are lawsuits, and that's it. There are lawsuits. So if you're an asbestos worker and you get mesothelioma, a fatal form of cancer that's only caused by asbestos, you will sue and you will win, but you will die. And that's how we regulate it's not regulated, but it's only controlled in any way by the lawsuits that are brought. So right. someone, uh, a company, whoever might want to use asbestos, might decide not to because there have been so many lawsuits. Exactly. That's the deterrent. Yeah. The and you, don't, you, wanna, you do not want to regulate that way. How do we change that? Well, there was a huge struggle, and there is a reform Tosca that's supposed to be better, but... Unfortunately, in the current political climate, it's not happening. And even the new Tosca is just doing a handful of chemicals at a time, a very small number. And there are 
you know, tens of thousands of industrial chemicals out there. And in fact, that's why, that's why we came up with this idea of, of really looking at chemicals in classes or families. Well, tell me first that there's like there's are there there are six classes of of chemicals that are. Well, there there are many classes, but we picked out six that are commonly used in everyday products where there is so much science that you don't have to kill any more rats. You know, we know that if a chemical is in this class, it's a chemical of concern. That doesn't necessarily mean you should never use it, but you should only use it if it's really necessary. You know, so if you say to a mom, you can have a lovely stain repellent carpet, but that stain repellent is cancer-causing is going to be in your child's body for many years to come and on the planet forever, that mom might decide that she doesn't really need that degree of stain repellency and there are alternatives. Um, So we came up with the class concept and indeed for that class, the stain repellent class, there's 4,000 members. There were two that were commonly used. It took literally 50 years from when it was first discovered they were toxic to when they were phased out, 1965 to 2015. And then they were replaced with chemicals that were virtually identical. The the toxic ones were called C8, eight carbons surrounded by fluorine, and so the replacement is C6, six carbons surrounded by fluorine. And these chemicals are uh, contaminating the drinking water of many millions of Americans, and there's huge concern. There's a lot of activity on the Hill. A lot of things are are passing. They're bipartisan. They're happening. And people are talking about regulating the whole class. And you see that in language today on the Hill, which is really gratifying. That uh, Because when you have 4,000 of them and it takes 50 years to regulate two, you need to not just go to the next regrettable substitute. And so we hear... So 2013 was our first retreat where we really formalized the class concept, and and we did six classes because that's a chunk people can understand. And um, we think that if those six classes were only used where they're really necessary, that would cut the health problems in our country to a large extent. And we're optimistic with all of them things are happening, and people are talking about classes. So we, we see huge progress. The voice of science is so powerful. And, um, you know, when, when we started studying PFAS in 2013, the first thing we did was start convening scientists from all over the world. And we've had a call every month since 2013. There are now 100 scientists who are in our network. And they share what's happening in science and in policy all over the world. And they help each other. And all over the world, we're moving forward on regulating the class. And, and affecting change. A lot is happening in Europe and Scandinavia, particularly Scandinavia, of course, but all, all, Australia has, you know, the UK. So it's very optimistic. Well, Arlene, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. A pleasure. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Got Science is made possible by the 130,000 members of UCS, and especially our Partners for the Earth, the 12,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to Stand Up for Science. Learn more at ucsusa.org partners. Special thanks to Dr. Arlene Bloom. Get Out the Vote segment by Diana Vasquez. Editing by Omari Spears. Additional editing and music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Worth and Jiayu Liang. 
Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Come find us on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. Thanks, and see you next time.